For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so last week we started a new book, the book of 2 Corinthians. And we talked about how there was definitely some tension between the author of this letter, a guy named Paul, and the recipients of this letter, a group of Christians in the city of Corinth. In fact, their relationship had been pretty strained for quite some time, maybe a couple, a couple of years since Paul originally started this group, was there for a year and a half, two years, and then left. Their relationship's been pretty tense. You know, if they had Facebook back then, it would have been complicated. And, um, you know, there were these accusations toward Paul. They were questioning his motives. You know, you, you saw a lot of this show up in the first letter, 1 Corinthians, that we studied. And uh, a lot of this was there already. There, was, there were opponents there. There were people suspicious of Paul. You know, he's, and Paul says, as for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or any human authority. My conscience is clear. And so they had all these reasons why he was motivated for bad reasons to be involved with them. They were questioning his authority and his credentials. He said, even if others think I'm not an apostle, I certainly am to you. You yourselves are proof that I'm the Lord's apostle. This is my answer to those who question my authority. There was also people saying that Paul was greedy. He was only in it for the money. He says, you know, if you financially support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? But we never used that right. Yeah, he was getting money. Other churches were sending money to support him. And he also had a job for a while so that he didn't take money from the Corinthian church just to be above board on this charge here. And so what we're going to see tonight is some things have transpired since he left Corinth that have given rise to another charge. You know... um, Imagine that you're dating somebody and you get in an argument with them and they're like, all right, look, I got to go, but I'll be back tomorrow to talk some more about this. And then tomorrow goes by and the next day and a week goes by and a month goes by and they haven't said anything. You'd start to feel like that communicated something about the relationship. And that's exactly what had happened here at Corinth. Paul had left. He said, I'll be back in a certain amount of time. And in fact, he had left. He had gone back once and he had a visit with them and it was really a painful visit. He was hoping to clear things up, but things just blew up. He said it was painful, it was sorrowful. And so he left, says, I'll come back. And then he didn't. And as the months went on, the Corinthians was like, man, is Paul ghosting us here? What is the deal? And so his opponents came in with their interpretation of what was going on. Paul's flaky. He doesn't care enough about you to keep his promises. Paul has dumped you guys because you're not convenient for him anymore. And so Paul, as he's writing the book of 2 Corinthians, he's writing to a kind of a tense situation. You know, he has to defend himself for their good. It's not like Paul just really needs them to like him. No, he knows these false teachers are bad news, looking to lead the Corinthians down a really destructive path. And so he's got to get them back listening to him because he's actually authorized by Christ to write scripture and to teach authoritative doctrine. And so he's got to do it, but it's for their good. And he's got to do it without trying to look self-serving, like he's trying to build up some sort of empire for himself. And so it's interesting to see the tact that he takes here. Let's, let's start reading in verse 12. 2 Corinthians 1.12, we can say it with confidence and a clear conscience 
that we've lived with God given holiness and sincerity in all of our doings. Yes, he says we have been sincere, not two-faced, no hidden agenda. He says my conscience is clear on this matter and I have totally, I'm totally confident that this is the case. We've depended on God's grace, not on our own human wisdom. Yeah, the Corinthians are very into wisdom, but it was a worldly kind of wisdom. Paul brought a backwards wisdom of God. He says that's how we conducted ourselves before the world and especially toward you. We're always this way, but we were especially this way with you guys. Now, our letters have been straightforward. There's nothing written between the lines, nothing you can't understand. And so, you know, his opponents were like, well, there's what Paul says and there's what Paul means. And we know his hidden agenda. You can't just trust Paul. He's a tricky guy. And Paul says, no, nothing written between the lines, no subtext. I said what I meant and I meant what I said. He says, I hope someday you'll fully understand us. Even if you don't understand us now, on the day when the Lord Jesus returns, you'll be proud of us in the same way we're proud of you. Look, even if we can't clear this up now, I, I guarantee you that on the day when Jesus returns and he brings to light the, the, the deep things in people's hearts, you're going to see that we were on your side the whole time. And you're going to regret not trusting us if that's the path you choose to take. He says, he tells him his original visitation plan. He says, you know, I was so sure of your understanding and trust, I wanted to give you a double blessing. I wanted to visit you twice. First, on my way to Macedonia, he's probably in Ephesus. In Acts 19 is the, the time in his life right now. He says, I was going to go to Macedonia through southern Greece. So Macedonia is northern Greece. He says, I was going to sail over to southern Greece where you guys are, visit you guys, go up to the north, and then come back down south, visit you guys again, and then you could send me on my way back to Jerusalem, Judea. So that was the plan. Why did Paul change his plan? You know, was it just on some sort of a whim? No, he had, he had good reason for it. And there's, there's two reasons we can deduce from the text. One, we actually, he, he told us back in 1 Corinthians 16. Remember when we finished that letter up and I said, now this part here, remember, we're going to come back to this. Well, now is that time. Because things were going so well where he was at in Ephesus. He says, I am coming to visit you in 1 Corinthians 16, 5. And he says, perhaps I'll stay a while with you, possibly all winter. You can see the tentative language here. He says, this time, I, I don't want to make just a short visit and go right on. What I really want is to come and stay a while if the Lord will let me. You can see in every, every phrase, he's got some sort of tentative language here. He's not like, you know, I'll cross my heart and hope to die. I'm definitely coming. But he's like, this is what I'd like to do. Um... He says, in the meantime, I'll stay here at Ephesus until the festival of Pentecost, which was in early summer. And he says, there's a wide open door for a great work here, although many oppose me. And so he had, things were going really well at Ephesus, and he just didn't feel right leaving this place where God was really working. And so he apparently stayed on through the festival of Pentecost. Um, it, it's unclear. We, we, we don't have the historical information about part of this period in his life, but it's clear things were going so well in Ephesus. He couldn't have foreseen this. There were also serious problems there. He couldn't have foreseen those either. He didn't know where this was going to lead, but he stayed there and he decided to keep on with the Ephesians. But it wasn't just that things were going so well in Ephesus. It was also things were going so poorly in Corinth. It was another reason he didn't go visit there. Remember, he went and visited them. It didn't go well. And so what he wants to do is he wants to give them some time 
give them a little bit of space to kind of process through some of the heavy things that he laid down on them. Um, he wants to give them time to kind of get, get their attitude turned around and get on the same page before he goes back. He says that in this same chapter. 2 Corinthians 1, he says, Now I call upon God as my witness that I'm telling the truth. The reason I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a severe rebuke. It doesn't mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. No, we want to work together so you'll be full of joy. It's by your own faith that you stand firm. I'm trying to build you guys up so you can stand firm and have joy. So I decided I wouldn't bring you grief with another painful visit like the one we just had, Paul says. Because if I cause you grief, who will make me glad? Certainly not someone I've grieved. That's why I wrote to you as I did the, the book of 1 Corinthians. It's probably what he's referring to here. So that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. He's like, you know, everybody's going to be sad if I show up now. But if I wait a little bit, it's going to be, I'm hoping things will come together and it'll be awesome. Surely you all know my joy comes from you being joyful. I wrote that letter, 1 Corinthians, in great anguish, with a troubled heart, with many tears. I didn't want to grieve you. I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. You see the heart of Paul here, even in the face of his enemies, opening up to them, continuing to reach out to them, being vulnerable, risking here. This is risky. And so things were going poorly in Corinth, and so Paul's just like, look, I, I, can't, I can't make this trip right now, and um, that's just going to have to wait. Now, that reasoning made sense from Paul's perspective, but he was hundreds of miles away over in Ephesus, and back then, communication was slow and expensive. He couldn't send an email, he couldn't make a phone call, couldn't send a text message. There's no FaceTime back then. And so, you know, he does send, he eventually sends a messenger to let him know what's going on. But um, they come back and they're like, man, they're, they're upset. He says someone, you know, what happened here at Corinth is someone they trusted has let them down. And that's probably not the first time in their lives. You know, here they were, they had trusted Paul. They, you know, he had close friendships with a lot of them, even though he had enemies. And, you know, some of them may have felt dumb for trusting him. Here, they just felt like he had completely dropped them because it wasn't convenient for him anymore. And there's all these accusations being heaped upon him by his opponents there. And more and more, the tide seemed to be turning against Paul. And these people were like, well, I guess I shouldn't have trusted people. You know, I thought I'd learned my lesson already. Now I, I'm going to move even more that direction. And now Paul's under suspicion. And so what does he do? Where does he go? How does he argue his case? Yes, he explains what he did, but what does he turn their attention to? He says, you may be asking why I changed my plan. You think I make my plans carelessly? You really think I'm like the people of the world who say yes when they really mean no? And this is really the way of the world, isn't it? People make promises and don't come through. They're like, yeah, I'll be there. They know they're not going to be there. Uh, or they think they're going to be there, but then the time comes and they're like, eh, I don't feel like it. There's a good show on. This game is pretty, I just don't feel like getting off off my couch really is my problem right now. And um, very unreliable. Um, you know, the wisdom of the world says you got to do what's right for you. 
And, um, you know, Paul's like, do you really think I'm like that? That I'm that selfish? Yeah, and I, I, people, maybe you guys have had this experience as well. I'm sure the people at Corinth had experienced this too, where somebody, you trust somebody, and they let you down, and you feel pretty dumb. Maybe, you've, maybe we've had this from parents. That could be really painful, because a lot of these comments, it seems like the younger you are when these letdowns happen, the, the more painful they can be. And like uh, one of my friends, when she was three, her mom went to drop her off at her grandma's and said, I'll be back soon, and then just disappeared for a whole year. And that's so painful. It's so hard to take. You, you can see where that would create cynicism, would create trust issues as you, as you grow older. You know, maybe you had friends who you trusted, maybe even roommates, who completely stabbed you in the back, betrayed you, took your stuff, and disappeared. Maybe it was a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Some say it seems like these romantic interests, this can also be pretty painful. They made promises. They said they would be there, and then all of a sudden, they get tired of you, and they moved on to somebody else. And you feel so hurt, so angry. Why did I trust? Authority figures, political figures, you know, they, you, you trust them, you think they're different, and then they turn out to be just like the other ones. And you resolve in your heart to never trust. You resolve in your heart, I will not be stupid. I will not allow myself to be hurt like that again. It makes you want to close your heart off. You become a person more and more who suspects everything, who tries to see through to the hidden agenda. In short, you know, you become a cynical person. And what was happening here with Paul at Corinth is the dynamics of cynicism and suspicion were beginning to turn against him. What is cynicism? Dick Keyes has a great book on this called Seeing Through Cynicism. He says cynicism as we use it today has to do with seeing through and unmasking positive appearances to reveal the more basic underlying motivations of greed, power, lust, and selfishness. Yeah, that's what's happening with Paul. It says every respectable public agenda has a hidden private agenda that's less noble, flattering, and moral. The philosopher Peter Sloterdick writes that cynicism is the universally widespread way in which enlightened people see to it that they're not taken for suckers. It's a good, it's a good definition. The experienced voice of cynicism says, watch out, don't be taken in. Suspicion is shrewd and necessary to life. Cynicism promises a more sophisticated way of seeing. Yes, I used to see it that way when I was naive like you. But now I know how the world really works. It promises to protect you from getting conned or disgraced or from letting your hopes be smashed in disappointment. Cynicism is elusive because it's not a school of philosophy or systematic thought in any sense. It's essentially a negative judgment. It stakes out no positive turf that would have to defend. It needs only unmask somebody's phoniness to make its case. How do you criticize someone who makes no positive assertions to criticize? Or, more difficult, how do you do it when his or her negative judgments are funny? As cynicism so often is. Much of the power of cynicism comes through wit and humor. There's serious disincentive to criticizing criticism because of the fear of the return strike. The cynic, if provoked, is often very good at using humor to make an opponent look naive, earnest, stupid, or uncool. 
It's much, much safer to leave the cynic undisturbed and unchallenged as they go around crapping all over everything in their detached, funny, witty way. That's, that's kind of what Paul was getting here from these Corinthians. They were seeing through what was between the lines, what were his motives, what he was really in this for. And if God isn't real, the cynic's right. I mean, it's actually worse than you think. We don't have time to go into the meaninglessness, even the, the lack of rationality in this world under atheism. But it's bad. And we shouldn't try to go put a positive spin on things because there's, at its core, this is all going down. But if God is real, then as Christians, we have a very different perspective on life, one that cuts right across the grain of cynicism. And this is where Paul points their attention. Where does he go? He says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. So what is his starting point? What is his sure thing? It is the faithfulness of God. That is the starting point for overcoming cynicism and moving to a place of hope where hope can happen. We see passage after passage in the Bible about the faithfulness of God. Joshua says at the end of his life, deep in your hearts you know that every promise of the Lord your God has come true. Not a single one has failed. And this is one thing you see when they begin talking about the faithfulness, the reliability of God, the trustworthiness of God, they almost can't help talking about God's word. Because the attribute of trustworthiness and faithfulness is primarily expressed in how God acts in accordance with his promises, how he fulfills his word. And Joshua says, no promise has failed, and you know it. Deuteronomy, Moses says at the end of his life, the eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Yes, this eternal safe place with the God you can trust, a place to dwell, a place of shelter. Man, when you read the Psalms, you just see metaphor after metaphor pointing to the faithfulness and trustworthiness and steadfastness of God. The psalmist says, you are my hiding place. You're my shield. Your word is my source of hope. There again, he links with the word. You think about a shield that protects you from the battle that's raging. You think about the hiding place when uh, you almost, almost envision someone hunting you down and you're in your hiding place and they can't find you because you're safe here. Psalm 18, he says, I love you, Lord. You're my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my savior, my rock in whom I find protection, my shield, the power that saves me, the place of safety. Six, seven, eight metaphors here just in these two verses. Man, fortress. I always think of Helm's Deep when I think fortress, man. Just this place back in the mountains. No one has ever conquered it. Will not fall. My savior, the one who jumps in and rescues me, who saves me. My rock, yes, a place of stability, a, pla a place of height, away from danger. And again, the shield, the, 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 the place of safety, the power that saves me. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. Yeah, the shepherd there for the sheep. Your sheep are dumb, sheep are vulnerable. But that's why the shepherd is there. He says, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Yeah, the valley of the shadow of death, a path that all of us will walk at least once in our life, maybe many times, where we feel like Paul felt last week, right on the brink of death. And one day we will perish. But he says, it doesn't matter. I don't need to fear it. And he doesn't say, I don't need to fear it because it's not that bad. No. No, I don't need to fear because even though the valley is dark, the baddest dude in the valley is right next to me. My shepherd and his rod and his staff, they're both for protection and guidance for me. Sometimes even the sheep needs a little whack to get back on course. Yes, this is the starting point for, for overcoming cynicism, the faithfulness of God. Paul is rooting his sincerity in God's sincerity, and there's implications for this. You know, for one, every one of God's attributes could change if it weren't for his faithfulness. Anything we know about God could be different tomorrow, so we could never trust him for anything. You know, trustworthiness, it's not trustworthiness if it's only true half the time, or three quarters, or even 98% of the time, trustworthy is still not totally trustworthy. And you're always wondering, when is the one or 2% of the time that this is going to fail? I mean, what, a, what, a, what about a bridge that's, that, it'll hold you up 98% of the time. You going to want to walk across that bridge? No. Everyone, this, this is, this gives us stability in our lives. You know, man, don't have time to go into this, but the whole, the whole field of science is essentially founded on an assumption that there's really an unchanging God who is there. The whole thought that we have laws of science is based upon this. God's un- unchanging. God's promises are always true no matter how I feel. Yeah, for the Christian who's been accepted completely and permanently by God, you know, today I feel close to God. I feel like he really loves me. The next day, I don't at all. I feel quite far from God. I see I haven't been living very well today. I've messed up many times. God must be pretty ashamed of me. God must be very far from me. And the answer is, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you always, he says. And so it doesn't matter how I feel. And this is where we begin to develop stability. This is where we begin to develop reliability. And it's not that we become an unemotional person. You see Paul's emotions here. What, what happens is your emotions, you know, now they're like this river that just floods the whole countryside and ruins everything. But what happens is the truth of God begins to build up the banks of the river. And so the river can carry even more water, more powerfully, but it's, it's safe. It's, it's where it's supposed to be. It's moving in the proper channels. And so we begin to become more and more of a reliable person who can say what we mean and mean what we say as we understand the faithfulness of God. And Paul says, this is the God that we've spent time with. This is the God who's changing us into his image. As surely as God is faithful, we also. We're honest here, guys. God will always keep his promises no matter how unlikely it seems. Yeah, if you read the Bible, what you see is that in story after story, the heart of the issue is, is God going to come through? Is he going to keep his promises? It seems like he's not. And you see how people respond in situation after situation. Whether they trust God or not, and there's times where it just seems like all hope is gone, and then God does come through. And in our lives... Isn't this the real point of tension for you spiritually? You're wondering, is God going to keep his promises? Is God going to come through? I'm disappointed with how things are going right now. 
I'm not happy about the pain that I'm in. Things are not going the way that I expected them to. Is God going to come through? Will he keep his promises? And the answer is yes, he will. He always will. It may not be in your timing. It may not be the way that you thought. Uh, it, It implies we need to know what his promises are and that we're not off base on that, thinking he promised something he never promised. We need to know his word. But God will always keep his promises. And so our job is to keep trusting him. And this is where we become faithful. This is where we become reliable, steadfast, sincere people who can come, come through on our promises. And so you've got Paul fleshing out the faithfulness of God. But, you know, how do I know that that faithfulness is at work in my life? Yes, the faithfulness of God, but there's something more needed there. And that's where he goes in the next verse. He says, for Jesus Christ, the son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He's the one who Silas, Timothy, and I preached to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. It's through Christ that we can say yes or no. It's through Christ that we can actually say what we mean and mean what we say. NLT does a real good job translating this section. It's almost unreadable in translations like the NASB. But you can see in every verse, this is talking about the reliability of Christ. He doesn't waver between yes and no. He's God's ultimate yes. He always does what he says. All of God's promises fulfilled in him with a resounding yes. And that's why we can say yes. So he says, as surely as God is faithful, and as surely as Christ is faithful, God the Father and God the Son. You can probably guess where he's going next. But he says, Jesus Christ does not waver. And so what we have is not just a God who's faithful in general, but we have a God who has demonstrated his commitment to us, his love for us. Jesus reveals God's commitment to us. It says in John, 1 John 4, 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Yes, Jesus Christ died on the cross. That is love right there. He left heaven, came to earth, suffered, and then died on the cross for our sins. And this is, this is the heart of the good news that the Bible talks about, that Jesus loves you and that he has died for your sins and you can receive his forgiveness. And if you do, then you come into a relationship with God that's permanent. You're gonna receive his spirit you're going to be guaranteed a spot in heaven. And all the promises of God suddenly are now applied to you. All of God's faithfulness, you're now, now, Jesus is your brother now. You're co-heirs with him, scripture says. You're gonna be such a place of honor in the scope of eternity. Yeah, his sacrifice makes the faithful love of God a reality in your life. Romans 8 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Yes, he he didn't give his son over freely. He gave his son over at incredible cost to himself. And if he can do that, everything else he can give freely. 
can give us all things. And Jesus, as Jesus promised, one of his final promises before he ascended into heaven, he said, surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. I will be faithful to you. I will never leave you. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we have the, the faithfulness of Christ. We have the sacrifice of Christ that makes the faithfulness of God relevant in our lives. And, and Paul says, this is, this is the Christ that we preach to you. This is the Christ we've, we've spent time with. He's conforming us into his image. He's trying to get their eyes onto God. He's trying to get them to take a vertical perspective on this. And finally, he says, after talking about God the Father's faithfulness and God the Son's faithfulness, he says, it is God who establishes us together with you in Christ and who anointed us, who also sealed us and gave us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit often show up together in scripture like this. And here he talks about the Holy Spirit is often how we personally access and experience God's faithfulness. This is where it comes down close and personal. You know, it says that one thing he does is he seals Christians in Christ. That's what he says in 21 and 22. He establishes us together with you in Christ. He sealed us. You know, the spirit, it's like he, when you become a Christian, he takes you and somehow spiritually connects you to Jesus Christ so that you can be guaranteed that your fate is bound up with his. You know, scripture says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father. And then it says in other places, keep, keep setting your eyes on heaven where you're seated in the heavenly places with God. Such a position of honor and, and glory that God gives us. He seals us in Christ. He connects us to him forever. We can trust him. It also says he anointed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. That's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So not only is the, the, the spirit puts you in Christ, he also, we also see the concept of Christ in you, the spirit of Christ in you. And this is one of the great, great things about being a Christian. You know, he gave us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. And you know, this down payment it shows how serious God is about his promises. You know, if you're gonna buy something, you put a down payment on it. That shows you're serious about buying that. I bought a car last year. It was up in Michigan. So I had to drive a couple hours to it. And I, I told the dealer, I said, can you hold that for me? He goes, well, you're gonna need to put some money down if I'm gonna hold this for you. So I gave him a hundred bucks. I knew if I didn't go get that car, I was gonna lose that hundred bucks. So I went and got the car. Didn't wanna lose my hundred bucks. But you know, I could have lost it and been okay. Here, though, I mean, if God's down payment is the Holy Spirit, he's not going to default on that promise. He's not going to just be like, oh, well, you know, I, get, I can go get another one. <laughs> no, he says, I'm giving you the Spirit. He will live, he will dwell in you. I am that serious. I am that trustworthy. I'm that sincere about these promises that I'm making to you. And as a Christian, it's incredible that first time, I can still remember the first time I experienced the Holy Spirit in my life. The Spirit does all sorts of things in our lives to help us experience the faithfulness of God and become more faithful like Him. Like this one right here, man. He's, it says, because we're God's children, He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father, 
And Abba means daddy in Aramaic. It's that kind of close personal relationship. And I was a guy, I grew up sitting through church and bored out of my mind. And I, I would hear about the love of God, but I would think of it as this very distant thing like the federal government or something. Where like, you know, it cares about you and I have some sort of responsibilities to it, but it's abstract and it's, it's not something I can feel. But then, sitting there as a 17-year-old under the preaching of the word and just finally, it's like it finally broke through. It was like that was the moment that after sitting in church my whole life, I think I became a Christian at that moment because I felt the love of God so powerfully deep in my soul and it brought me to tears because this was the love I'd always been looking for and was never able to find. And if you told me before that, you know, do you know what the love of God is? I'd be like, I mean, I guess. Do you know what, do you know what it's like to sense the Holy Spirit assuring you of the love of God? I'd be like, um, yeah. But after experiencing it, I realized how much I was missing out on. And um, I've talked to Christians that, that, they say they're Christians, but they seem to have no idea what, what the joy, the peace of the, the Spirit is, the, the Spirit pouring out God's love in your heart. Something's, something's missing there. God gives us his Spirit to assure us of our sonship, our daughtership to experience that personal connection with him, to experience his faithfulness, to have that, that conversation with him in our hearts. He also says the fruit of the spirit. The spirit begins to produce all these fruits in our lives. Love gives us joy and peace. Joy and peace. That's, that's, God promises that. You should be experiencing joy and peace in your Christian life. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, God is offering you joy and peace. This is the thing you're looking for. He says, ultimate joy, ultimate peace, it's only available from me by my spirit, God says, because I'm the one that invented joy and peace. He offers patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness is a fruit of the spirit. We become more like the faithful God who we serve, gentleness, self-control. These are the sorts of, and, and you know, with fruit, it's not something you grunt out, you know? You don't, see a, you don't see a grapevine grunting out the grapes. It's, fruit is born. Fruit is born. It's, 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 like, it's, it's, a, it's like a living process here. So cool. Not self-effort and duty. But it's born through a relationship with God by his spirit. And he says in Romans 8, 26, we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And so we, a, a prayer life with God. God's Spirit, one of his jobs is to help you have a good prayer life. And some Christians feel really dissatisfied with their prayer life. Well, maybe that's because God's Spirit, maybe, that, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a sign of God's Spirit's work in your life. He's convicting you. He says, don't you want more of this? God is calling out. Deep is calling to deep. Maybe we're in unbelief. Maybe we don't believe the Spirit really wants to help our prayer life. Maybe we should claim this promise a little bit more in our prayers. Say, thank you, God, for giving me the Spirit of prayer. Thank you that you're committed to more to this than I am to it. I want to I pray, Lord. I want to talk to you. I want to have a real robust prayer life.
That's a good prayer of helplessness that God's spirit can work with. And so we see his spirit he's given to us to personally experience his faithfulness. Paul says he establishes us together. He anointed us. He sealed us. He gave us this down payment. Just a few other observations here about Paul moves into their cynicism. You know, it's the, the suspicion, the skepticism, you know, he, his, real, his real strategy is he's trying to get them focused on God. And there was a time in my life where I almost lost it spiritually. I was a pretty young Christian and um, there was a leader in my life who was bitter at all the other leaders in my home church. And he kept feeding me all of these lies about them. He would tell me that they always just sit around and complain about people and they're too critical and they have too many expectations on people and God says we shouldn't have any expectations and he would, he would interpret statements that certain leaders would make. You know, we'd get, we'd get back from home church and he'd be like, oh, did you see how he said this? Or she thought she was so proud and I was really getting bitter. Well, then this leader that was feeding me all the BS, he, he left and I was left there wondering if I was even gonna keep following God. And what I started doing is I started sitting down with God and I started, I got my focus off of all the humans that I was so angry at and I got my focus onto God and I started processing through my circumstances from a vertical perspective. I started just, just vomiting all of my crazy thoughts out into my password protected journal in prayer and what I found is as I got my fo- focus on the God, I started being able to evaluate people. I started being able to put things into perspective. And I started suspecting my cynicism. I started getting cynical toward my cynicism. And I also started seeing the, um, the problems with what this other guy was saying. God started, God started to show me things as part of what happened through his spirit. I think that's what Paul's trying to do here. He's trying to get them a vertical perspective on this whole situation. Because a leader that's just wanting to build up his own empire and get money from somebody, he's not going to be pointing people to God like this. He's going to be pointing people to himself. Paul did have the character to support his claims to sincerity. I mean, if he was like really a shady guy, then it doesn't matter what he said. But, and, and so he had let God work in his life. It's, there is an element of that. And that, that's why character is, um, faithfulness is a requirement for uh, spiritual leadership, according to 1 Timothy. Not a liar, not double-tongued, it says. And so that's, that is one point here we need to keep in mind. Paul's able to point to his example as one of his points that he's making. But the other thing that I'm amazed by in this book is Paul continues to open up his heart to them. As these people kick him while he's down and accuse him when he's really sincerely following God, he continues to open up his heart. Did you notice that? He says, when the Lord returns, I want you to be proud of us the same way that we're proud of you. You don't tell your enemy how proud you are of them. That's not how you win the conflict according to the wisdom of the world. Or did you notice in 2.3, he says, I wrote to you as I did so when I come, I won't be grieved by the very ones that ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know my joy comes from your being joyful. Yeah, when I see you guys doing well spiritually, I'm so happy. I'm brought to tears sometimes when I see, Paul says, when I see my children walking in the truth. He says, you know that letter 
that painful letter I wrote, 1 Corinthians, I wrote it in great anguish, with a troubled heart, with many tears. I didn't want to grieve you. I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. That was discipline and love, people. He says, the, the parchment was stained with my tears. It was, it was not pleasant to bring you pain, but I, I felt like this was the only way. And I, he'd been through this enough b- before that he knows sometimes you've got to bring a strong word and the person will get angry at the time. But then later, they'll say, thank you. That was the most loving thing anyone's ever done for me. And so what do we conclude from this passage? God offers a world where we can have sincerity and integrity. It's a world where we can take the risk to trust. He gives us the security and the stability to open our hearts up, to overcome evil with good instead of fighting evil with evil. A world where we can hope. Do you want hope? God is the God of hope. This is what he offers. Cynicism at its core tries to strip off the thin facade of good to expose the awful hidden reality. God, on the other hand, he promises that one day he will uproot the deep evil in this world and he will make all things new. That's pretty cool. All right. Next week, we're going to finish off two and get into three where Paul talks about the smell of victory. All right. Well, let's pray and I'll close. Yeah, God, you're not looking for us to become suckers or chumps or whatever. You, you want us to see reality the way you do. And uh, that means seeing the negatives, but it also means seeing things that are unseen. Seeing with the eyes of faith, Lord. Seeing, seeing you, looking for you, looking for your, the ways you're at work in our lives, Lord. Um, I'm thankful for how... Your faithfulness then becomes the foundation for us becoming stable, faithful people, Lord, reliable people, um, people who are not just driven by our emotions because our um, feet are planted on the rock. God, I, um, I thank, thank you for how you impart your faithfulness to us, Lord, through your Son, through your Spirit, and um, I, I pray we would become sincere people, Lord, that um, see things clearly. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.